Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Dean Oliver, author of Basketball on Paper. I've done this a long time. I'm listening to The Jake Brown Show. And welcome to the Jay Brown Show, CBS Radio's Radio.com podcast network. Change from play.it to radio.com. You catch us on iTunes and Spotify as well. Follow me at Jake Brown Radio and follow our show at Jake Brown Show on Twitter. Joining us now, some would consider him, I mean, this is a pretty epic uh, name that you could get called, the godfather of basketball analytics. He's worked in uh, with the Sonics, the Nuggets, the Kings. Um, his book you can get is Basketball on Paper. You can follow him on Twitter at Dean O underscore Lytics. Dean Oliver. Dean, appreciate you coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing pretty well. It's a good day. And, uh, you know, Dean, your birthday is the day after mine, February 6th minus February 5th. So we are part of the Aquarius Club. Yours uh, a couple decades prior to mine, but I won't I won't age you uh, too much. Uh, wow. <laughs> I, uh, I'm surprised you have all that information. I'm surprised that that important at this point <laughs> everything's <laughs> on the internet these days you know how it is um, oh man <laughs> are there i mean what's your opinion on the statistics in the game today and how much it's evolved um since you started uh working in the industry it's evolved a lot uh i think it's evolved in some ways better than others there's a, there's a massive increase in the amount of data that's available. We've gone from having basically just box scores and some play-by-play stuff to having all this player tracking data in incredible detail at every tenth of a second or less than that, I think. Uh, and the actual analysis of the data has grown in, in a variety of different ways uh, in that we're not only doing player ratings, we're really understanding some of the roles and some of the fit for players and that uh, that evolution is uh, has sometimes gone the wrong way but uh, I think it's it's usually come back and, and figured it out what don't you like I mean you mentioned a little bit but what don't you like that's part of this uh, statistical game today uh, I, I think we still have um, we, we still have a number of people who think that analytics is just doing statistics on the numbers that come out mm-hmm. that uh, I mean, Stan Van Gundy mentioned this a few years ago, how far Paul George ran or this kind of thing. That doesn't mean much. And there's still some of these kind of common things, how well a guy shot is not just their field goal percentage or their effective field goal percentage. It, there is a lot more to it. There is some um, people oversimplify. Uh, and sometimes for that, that's for communication sake. And sometimes it's because they don't know any better. And that that frustrates me. I see it in media, but I also see it sometimes behind the scenes when you're talking to people with a club. And and I think you can optimize a team if you don't let the stats lie to you. And that's frankly, I think there's some people who just uh, don't know how to keep the stats from lying to you. Well, what do you think when guys like Charles Barkley or Michael Wilbon? I mean, you know, Barkley is 
hates the deep analytics and all that stuff. What, what does that mean to you as as an analytics guy when those guys say, hey, screw these stats, uh, they're, I don't care about them? You know, it depends. I mean, this is a world where people uh, are paid to entertain a little bit, and you're talking about two guys who entertain. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, Michael Wilbon and Charles, I, I find Charles incredibly entertaining. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never talked to him. I, I've certainly, entering the league in 2004, I ran into a lot of people who said that numbers can't really help them. And it, and it evolved. As long as you can have those conversations, it's fine. But Charles is not having a conversation. He's entertaining people. He's, up, he's given a podium, and, and Michael Wilbon, the same thing. They're, they're given a podium where they can preach. It's, it's not necessarily a conversation. And I think behind the scenes, you can have those conversations and make a difference. What were a couple, when you look at yourself, what were the a couple of your biggest advancements, Dean, that you made towards the game and statistics? If you had to point out two or three of them? I think the one I'm most known for is, is breaking down efficiency into the, the four factors and shooting, turnovers, rebounding, and getting to the foul line. Uh, that one certainly it gives a framework for understanding how a team works beyond just scoring points and and using possessions. I think that is is very critical. I think uh, I've done uh, a little bit of work as well on this concept that the more you score, the less efficient you're generally going to be. Hmm. And that was very, very controversial. I think it's becoming less controversial. But uh, the players who, and, and certainly being around players like Allen Iverson and Carmelo Anthony, who tend to shoot a lot, and some of those are bad shots, though they may be better shots for them than for some other players, uh, understanding that relationship uh, is, is important. Did the you more have- you shoot. The, the less efficient it will be. Did you have to teach a lot of these guys in the front office when you were there? I mean, with the Kings, with the Nuggets, with the Sonics, did you have to like kind of like be the guru to some of these guys? Because I'm sure it wasn't a thing until, I mean, you get there and you're digging deep into this stuff and a lot of guys are like, what the hell is going on? Well, there's a, there is an element of teaching, I think, in almost every job because mm-hmm. it's part of communication. But uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't necessarily trying to teach them everything either because we're all trying to answer basketball questions and the more i could keep things in basketball language i think the better things got accepted certainly i had to bring up some evidence and things like that that forced a little education on whether it's a little bit of my language or some of the numbers that can be used to support concepts that people didn't know you could quantify ability to create shots and things like this um, but I generally have tried to keep it in basketball language. How do we get better? How do we make this player better? How do we beat this team? And I generally didn't like providing reports that just had numbers or graphs on them. I tried to make everything words. What guy that you worked with in the front office did you personally learn the most from? Oh, in the front office, uh, Mark Workington. Mark Workington, without a doubt. He's with the Knicks right now. Mark is... He is brilliant in uh, he understands how to to view a lot of transactions. He he worked um, he was in in Portland for years and he learned. Oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name of the, uh, the legendary Portland uh, executive. But Mark learned a lot about how to get deals done with the people you're uh, trading with, for instance. But also working within the front office, working with coaches. Um, how 
coming up with very simple arguments to explain why you want to do what you want to do. Even if the argument in order to get there was more complex, what simple argument do you use to explain it? Dean Oliver joining us here on the Jake Brown Show. Follow him on Twitter at Dean O underscore Lytics. Can you take us back to the trade for Allen Iverson? You were there with the Nuggets, and obviously it was controversial, but can you kind of take us through what was going on uh, on the back end there? Uh, only a little bit. Um, <laughs> that was very early uh, when I started with the Nuggets. I think it was within the first couple months uh, for sure. Um, and I can tell you in general, as with this with this kind of deal, there's there's always a lot of discussion that goes around with it. And um, me, as I'm getting to know Mark and I'm getting to know everyone else, I put out information that suggested uh, various options. And, and, and ultimately, I didn't have a, as much say there. But when you make the deal, you are trying to optimize the players you have. And with with AI there, um, my my work immediately turned to how do we make the most out of him and working with George and such to to optimize the team that we had. With Mello being a big scorer, with AI being a big scorer, uh, what kind of dynamics do we have to deal with on the offensive side and then on the defensive side? And there there were not a lot of numbers to support. For instance, how many free throws they may be getting, and what does that do to uh, slow down the game? If if both get to the foul line a lot, does that slow things down? And you look into a lot of that. Um, do you, do you want to uh, work uh, back in the NBA at some point? Uh, cer- certainly, yes. I uh, I miss competition of the NBA without a doubt. Uh, I miss a lot of the people. I miss the challenge. I do. Um, I enjoy the work that I'm doing right now, which is kind of developing an analytical framework around football and trying to incorporate what's been out there uh, and build new stuff. But the competition and, and knowing that I have tools to, to win within basketball, uh, is it's a little hard sitting on the sideline knowing that I could be helping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. And that has to be frustrating at times and i'm sure someone's gonna bring you in at some point i mean we'll take you with the knicks here we could use some deep dives into the uh, analytics of i mean what's what is going on with the knicks i mean you you've been with mellow i mean what do you think it seems like in the coming days i mean when this podcast drops he could be gone but who knows what, what how do you think the knicks should manage this situation you know i think it's a it's a hard situation with the you know, trade clause with right now the apparent value of mellow probably being as low as it's ever been, which is is not an ideal position to be in if you're the next, too. If you're trying to, to trade him and you're going to get the minimum that you could have ever gotten, mm-hmm. that's not a great situation at all. Um, so I think, I mean, I've always believed that you, you want to maximize what you've got right now. If they're rebuilding, rebuilding doesn't mean being bad. It means trying to take the guys that you have and build it into the best team you can. And I think right now, if I'm them, I say, we're going to do it with Mello um, because there are a lot of good things about him. It's people ask me about who's the most underrated and overrated players. And for what happens is the pendulum sometimes swings too far. And I think that may have happened with Mello at this point, that it just swung like Mello's has in the past done some good things and i haven't done the analysis to 
or know his his body right now. If his body is not in great shape, he could continue to slide. But um, he has he has shown he's got some great skills that uh, do age reasonably well. Um, he can he can do a lot. So I think you've got to build the best team around him and the other guys you have. Yeah, I agree. And and I think you had an interesting tweet when you were talking about it. It takes longer for teams to get good by tanking than it does by them building. And that's kind of a situation we look at with the Knicks. If you trade Carmelo Anthony, you're pretty much tanking. They're not going to get a good return for him. Maybe get first-round picks, but the roster on paper without Melo, no dis- disrespect to Michael Beasley, who is Michael Beasley's favorite player as Michael Beasley. <laughs> um, but, I mean, they, they just won't be – they'll be a 25-win team without him. So it's interesting that you say that. Maybe you just keep Melo, have him teach these younger guys. Um, but then you look at the other side, Dean, and it's like Melo, it just seems like if he plays, that he might not be playing his hardest and he was going to be moping around, and which is ridiculous considering he's got $51 million coming to him over the next two years. But – you, you look at both sides of the spectrum, and you don't know what you're going to get out of him if you keep him. Uh, and then if you get rid of him, you're going to be tanking, and then you're going to take longer to win, like you said. Hopefully you are you have a professional relationship with Melo, uh, because that's, that's really important. I mean, you are a professional organization, and you want the people working with you um, to be professional. If Melo really wants out in, in two months, I mean, one of the best ways for him to do that is to, to show some of the value that he has, to mm-hmm. show some of the leadership that he should have going for him at this point, um, some of that experience. And I think um, that is how you help your team immediately and potentially down the road. You get If you do have to trade him, if he, you do find an option at the trade deadline, something along those lines that, that works, it may help you um, – the Knicks in the short term, and it helps the other team. And that's that's what you want to get to. I agree 100%. And I think he should play at least a few months and raise his value. Because right now his, his stock is at an all-time low uh, after this drama-filled offseason. If he could have a co- couple good bunts, not only does his stock rise, but after around Christmas time, those guys who sign new deals in the offseason are going to be able to get traded. So the Knicks could get a better return, and they could potentially give someone else up uh, to get a better return. So in my mind, I thought a deal with for Kyrie would have been great, but obviously they wanted Porzingis, and that's when the Knicks said no. Can you explain, Dean, that tweet and just your research behind it of teams taking longer to tank a la Sixers versus actually building a team? Well, the Sixers, the Sixers haven't had a winning season in, what, uh, six years or so at this point. And it's that's you can't use that as the only evidence. In general, what I looked at is what is the concept of tanking? Tanking is is this concept that you basically lose games, especially towards the end of the season, in order to secure a higher draft uh, pick. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to get number one, but it it, pro- it probably means you're going to get at least number three or number five instead of being number eight, for instance. So, And it's hard to know what teams intentionally do it versus unintentionally play bad, but when you look at the teams that generally played poorly over the end of the season relative to what you would expect, um, some of them, yeah, they they did get the right player. But there are a lot of teams that didn't, and their recovery back to being good took forever. The 1997 draft with Tim Duncan it is, is, is a great example of this, and it's kind of the microcosm of a lot of them. Um, people say San Antonio tanked to to get Tim Duncan. 
well, they got hurt. Is it clear that they tanked? Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were bad to start the year, but they actually got better as the season went on. They they played uh, uh, Avery Johnson, they played Vinny Del Negro, and they were better in the last third of the season than they were in the first two th- thirds of the season. They ended up, I believe, with the the third seed or basically the third best chance to get number one pick. They, they got number one. The teams that tanked, that looked like they tanked, were Boston, the Grizzlies, Denver. They were terrible. They were much worse over the last third of the season. And who did they get? They didn't get Tim Duncan. Mm-hmm. And those teams didn't get back to 500 for a long time, like five to seven years. So that's there's a risk. Um, San Antonio did the least to tank by playing poorly in, at the end, and they got the best reward. And they developed they developed some of their their young guys because they were working harder yeah. than they were in Boston and those other places. Dean Oliver, basketball on paper.com. Go get his book now. Uh, how do you think the Sixers now will fare? Now these young guys are starting to shape together. Maybe they get creep closer to that playoff race. Do you see this uh, long, long uh, rebuilding process finally working out here? Uh, I don't. I, I think it will work out. Uh, I'm not as optimistic, I think, as other people about this year because mm-hmm. Markel Fultz is a rookie and he's a young point guard, and there are very few young point guards who are any good as a rookie um, or even second year. And Ben Simmons uh, is kind of the same situation. He's effectively a rookie point forward or whatever he is, and he hasn't played at the NBA level, uh, even if mm-hmm. he's second year, but he's a rookie. So you have a lot of inexperience there, and I think they're gonna. It's gonna take them a while. I wouldn't be surprised if they if they struggle for a while and they show growth at the end, and that's what you want to see. But. For them to win forty some games, which I'm seeing some people projecting, that seems that's a lot. No way. That seems optimistic. Now, mm-hmm. Joel Embiid, he played exactly as a lot of people thought he could play. I had, I'd heard great things about him. His projections coming out of college were that this guy was a super talent, and he played that way. But he played 800 minutes last year, mm-hmm. and that's always played in three years. So, if he, if he could just Dean play as many minutes and play as many games as as many iconic tweets that he has on Twitter. I mean, this guy is a legend on social media, but, I mean, he, he has more tweets average per week than he does per game uh, in a season. So if he could just stay on the floor, and everyone could stay on the floor. As Simmons was hurt and Fultz, I mean, in his first damn uh, summer league game got hurt. Uh, they just need to stay on the floor. Before we let you go, shifting to the NFL, because I know you're diving into those anal- analytics, can you explain – QBR to me and exactly how important that is in judging how good a quarterback is? Uh, I would say it's it's a start. It's better than a lot of things out there. What it does is it looks at every play that happens on a football field and tries to determine how much responsibility the quarterback had for the results of that play. So if he's just handing off the ball, in general, the quarterback has very little to do with that play. But if if they're throwing the ball, there's credit that goes to the offensive line if the offensive line gives him five seconds and and he's got receivers that are getting open uh it tries to say oh okay everybody did their job it's not just the quarterback um if he made a great throw after 2.1 seconds reading the blitz and identifying the hot receiver 
then more goes to that quarterback. And that's what it tries to do. Is it perfect? No, because the data is, is, is still not there to do everything right. But that's what it aims to do. And as the data gets better, it will get better. I mean, it's definitely interesting when you look at it, when you see Deshaun Watson right now is number two in QBR behind Matt Ryan. Isn't that kind of wild? Uh, Well, the way I look at it is um, it's like when you look at field goal percentage leaders in the NBA after a week and who's leading that, it's the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of noise. And in football, of course, with 16 games, you can have a ton of noise. And, And the other thing, of course, is, QBR is a rate stat. It's like field goal percentage. A lot of times the guys who lead that are these bigs who they get to take easy shots um, all the time. And QBR, that's an efficiency, but how many points they actually add to the success of the team is, is another step. And that may be a better way to evaluate quarterbacks from the perspective that a lot of people think. They throw a lot and they're efficient versus guys who don't throw a lot but maybe very efficient which stat in the nfl do you think is most important to teams and which stat is least important (laughs) people generally jump to turnovers as the most important and turnovers are very important because Mm -hmm. each turnover is very very important in the nfl but um right now it's such a passing league that in some ways I would go to, in terms of a simple stat, I would go to simple, a simple thing like passing yards. It's a very simple stat, but, you know, and it, there are, of course, times where it lies, where you're coming from behind and you throw for 500 yards, but they still scored 40 points. And, but I think it's as good. People forget that turnover sometimes lie, too. Um, the least important Least important is a little bit tricky uh, because probably the one that gets overused is time of possession. Now it's not used as much as it used to, that you want to have a lot of time of possession. And there is truth to it. There, there is um, value to keeping your defense off the field, giving them rest and stuff, but I think it still may be a little bit overvalued. Dean Oliver, the godfather, really, of analytics, sports analytics. He was, uh, you were essentially the first uh, full-time statistical analyst in the NBA back in 2004. You can follow him on Twitter at Dean O underscore Lytics and get his book Basketball on Paper at basketballandpaper.com. Dean, it was great talking to you. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Take care. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.